What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Daily Bible Reading Snapshot Podcast, and congratulations on finishing the book of Genesis. That's no small feat when you think about how big this book is and how important it is. But now we're jumping into the book of Exodus. Now, Exodus is all about how the people of Israel exit the land. And I want you to think the original audience still is not yet to the present day. So if you were receiving this book and you were listening to Moses read it or one of the elders of Israel read it as you prepare to go into the land, just remember, you're still learning history. Right now, it's recent history. Now, it's like, uh, for us Americans, it's like learning about what happened in the 20th century, not what happened in the 16th or the 17th century. But still, this is still history. So the people of Israel are looking back. They start to enter the story as the book of Exodus begins. But as we find out, we'll see this character named Moses, who is a very old man by the time this book is written. So why is it called Exodus? Well, that's because the people of Israel are going to exit the land. What land? Well, they're going to exit the land of Egypt in slavery, and they're going to become free, and they're going to enter, by the end of the book, they're going to begin to enter the land of Israel and Canaan, which is going to be a long process. And we get the book of Numbers that's going to explain all what happens in the wilderness. We're going to get the book of Deuteronomy, which is going to be that last final charge from Moses. Some people look at the book of Deuteronomy like it's Moses's final sermon to the Israelites. And then they enter the land in the book of Joshua. So where does this fit in? This book fits in because it's really trying to answer two questions primarily. The first question is, who is this God who brought his people out of the land of Egypt? That's very, very important. And all throughout the book, we're going to get answers to that question. And then another question is very important, is who are these people that are brought out of Egypt? So I think it's very important to put yourself back in the sandals of the original readers because they're learning two things. They're learning about themselves and they're learning about God. And if you can look at the book of Exodus and find answers to those two questions, you're going to go a long way. And this is how God presents himself, right? Who is this God? Well, there's a lot that is said about this God. He introduces himself in this book. If you think, when does God describe most about his character? and his name, and himself. Does he do that a lot to Abraham? Does he do that a lot to Isaac? How much does he do that to Jacob? Well, he does it a little bit, and there's there's hints, and then there's more information revealed about him. But really, we see the fullness of who God is start to be displayed in the book of Exodus. We find out that he goes by I am, or the, the word Yahweh, the Hebrew word Yahweh, which means I'm the self-existent one. I'm not reliant or dependent on anyone or anything. I never had a beginning. I never had an end, right? That's what it means to be the great I am. And that's what God says about himself. So that's a very important question you're gonna answer. Who is this God? Another thing that we find about this God is he's a savior. Now, what kind of saving has God done in the story up until this point, right? If you go back to Genesis, you think about how God, well, he, he saved Adam and Eve in the sense that he didn't kill them right away, and he saved Noah and his family from the flood of judgment, and then Lot is saved from the city of Sodom. So there are instances where God saves, but that's what this whole book is about. We've got a whole nation of people who go into the land being about 70 or 80 people, and they leave the land 400 years later with a million people. But this group of people, the Israelites, become subjected to slavery because they're a threat. 
they're living separate lives. And we mentioned this a little bit when we talked about how Jacob blessed his sons and even prophesied about them. There's something unique that's going to happen that you know, we're not used to as Americans. We're used to people groups kind of living together, intermarrying, and then the culture's all just kind of mixing. But with these Israelites, they continued a culture in the midst of these Egyptians, not saying there's no Egyptians involved. In fact, we find out that there are outsiders. It's called a mixed multitude when the Israelites leave. But primarily, we have one ethnic group that's combined together by their family, by their faith in God, that exists as a nation among another nation. So that's very interesting as you start to read the book. Notice that this people group that's going out of the land of Egypt, there is a lot of questions about who are we, right? And that's really the second big question is who are these people? Some things we learn about these people is they're the people of God that come from the the line of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. We even see when God introduces himself as the I am, that's actually the first way he tells Moses who he is. He doesn't say, I am the great I am. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, your forefathers, right? So that's how God describes himself. And that is really related to who we are as people as we read this book, especially if we put ourselves in the shoes of these first uh, first audience that gets it, the Israelites. So um, another thing that I think we learn about who these people are is it's a good reminder that they are not inherently slaves to some other nation, but they're inherently God's people. And God does something to redeem them so that forever and always, if you ever read the rest of the Bible, you're going to see all these different allusions back to the Exodus and about God's saving power. So it's kind of how they identify themselves. It's like if I asked you as a Christian, well, what are you as a Christian? What's part of your identity? You'd say, well, I'm I'm a son or daughter of God. I'm adopted by, by God. I, I'm a brother of Jesus Christ in the way that it's described in the book of Romans. You would say different things like that. You'd also maybe say, I am one of God's redeemed people. I'm like a slave that was bought by someone else and now I serve a different master. That's how the New Testament describes our salvation, that we were once slaves to sin, but God has made us slaves to him and slaves to righteousness. Even when we use words like Lord in the New Testament, when we call Jesus Lord, what we're saying about ourselves is we are your slaves. This is very interesting, and again, it's not a way we typically think, but if you read the book of Exodus, this makes so much sense with how the people of Israel are described. It reminds me of of a passage in the New Testament that is going to become pretty important as you study the book of Exodus. Uh, Peter picks up on this language in 1 Peter 2. He, He tells the Christians there, he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's 1 Peter 2.9. But why does Peter use that language? It's because this is what God did already in the Exodus. So as a Christian, you read this book, you think, okay, can I learn about who this God is? Absolutely. God doesn't change. He is the I am. And that's funny, right? Because the I am that's described here in Exodus 3, part of the definition of his name is that he doesn't change. Therefore, You can read this book and see this is the same God that you love. This is the same God that you serve. There's two main places in the book where he tells us who he is. It's One of them is in Exodus 3. 
Another is in Exodus 34, which we'll read next week, where he tells Moses who he is, and he gives this amazing language about being the God of steadfast love and faithfulness, and the God who judges sin when he needs to. And all these things we learn from the book of Exodus. Sometimes it's helpful before you start any book of the Bible to think, what do we gain from this book? And what would we not know about God? And what will we not know about ourselves if we didn't have this book of the Bible? So there's a lot of things that fit into that category. Um, and as you read, just some key events that you're going to read this week in the book of Exodus, you're going to see the birth of this boy named Moses, and you're going to see how he grows up. He's adopted by Pharaoh's household, by uh, the daughter of Pharaoh, to be precise. And he lives a royal upbringing. We even see Stephen tells us about that in, in, in the book of Acts when he preaches to the Israelites there. We know for a fact that Moses was well-educated. He was wealthy when he was growing up, especially as a young man. And the book of Hebrews says that he turned his back on all the wealth and the privileges of Egypt so that he could be identified with God's people. So uh, we learn that about him. He actually murders somebody, uh, kind of a little bit of an instance of self-defense, but he's trying to defend the Israelite here. And uh, once the Egyptians find out about that, Moses knows he has to run. So at that point, even his identity, he's starting to identify with the Israelites even more. He goes to the land of Midian. He gets married. Um, he has kids. And as he's a shepherd out there as an 80-year-old man, God visits him in a burning bush that's not consumed. And God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I am who I am. And you need to, let, you need to go to Pharaoh and tell him the I am wants to let his people go, and you need to let him go. But it's interesting, even at the beginning, God will continue to say, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart, which is very interesting. We read that and we think, okay, you know, Pharaoh's a bad guy. We get it. But God has no involvement in making his heart hard, does he? Well, if you honestly read this book and you take it at face value, if that's your working assumption before you start reading, I challenge you that that's probably going to change as you read this book. God is involved with hardening Pharaoh's heart. There are times where it looks like Pharaoh will respond rightly, and then he chooses not to. There are times where uh, he does the right thing and then changes his mind later on. So uh, God is involved sovereignly, and he is involved in even the, the details of Pharaoh's heart so that he'll get glory. And that's the other thing. One big thing we learn about God in the book of Exodus is that he gets glory over Pharaoh, over Egypt, over the Egyptian gods. And that's the next thing we see in the book. Moses goes to confront Pharaoh. Pharaoh says no. And then God sends the 10 plagues. And the 10 plagues are very hard to understand if you don't know the background of Egyptian mythology, which we're not going to talk all about Egyptian mythology right now. But suffice it to say that there are gods of the Nile. There are gods of life. There are gods of the sun. There are gods of cows and bulls. There's gods, one of the gods, the deities, is just the god Pharaoh. They looked at the Pharaoh as a god. And what does God do in bringing his people out of Egypt? He defeats the Nile. He turns it into blood. Frog gods are no match for him. Cow gods are no match for the Lord. Bull gods are no match for the Lord. Isis, the god of life, well, she's no match for God. Ray and Horus, the gods of the sun, they're no match for, for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because he constantly proves his authority and his power over all these other people and all these other gods. And that should just make all of us step back and say, who is this God that we serve? He's not like 
other gods. He's not some figment of our imagination. He's the creator, and he has stepped into time and space and done amazing things for his people. And he does that after he does the 10 plagues. The 10th plague uh, leads to what we call the Passover in Exodus 12, where God takes the people out of Egypt. They go really quickly. They eat a special meal, and all the people leave, and it's like they plunder the Egyptians. Not that they're forcibly taking stuff, but they, people are willing to give these Israelites everything they need as they leave slavery. I mean, it's the ultimate reversal that takes place. And then they end up at the Red Sea and the people start complaining. And they say, Moses, did you bring us out of this land so that um, we would just die in the wilderness? Are there not enough graves in Egypt that you brought us out to die here? And God has to lead through Moses to tell the people, trust me, trust me, trust me. And he leads them through the Red Sea on dry ground. And as he's going through, at the very end, God closes the waters up while all the Israelites are safe and the Egyptians all drown in the Red Sea. And right after that, you get one of the first worship songs in the Bible in Exodus 15, where Miriam and Moses, they lead worship for the people and explain that God is a saving God. They say, God is a man of war. He fights and look how he's fought for us. He's our savior. He's our deliverer. And then it says next that the people start to complain. It's very interesting. You're going to see that pattern as we continue to read Exodus and especially in the book of Numbers. You're going to see how God saves and then the people are happy for like two seconds and then they complain. And then God gives them manna from heaven. And then God gives them quail. And then God gives them water from the rock. And God is going to continue to sustain and provide for his people, which is a good reminder of the God that we serve. We better not be like the Israelites who complain. If God is our savior, we better trust him, look to him, wait for him, and be people who are just willing to uh, follow him no matter what. And really, that leads us well into our New Testament, where we're going to be studying Matthew 15 through 19 in the week in this week's DBR, where really we could break our reading up into four parts. The first part is where Jesus does signs and miracles, again, like the one we just talked about, manna from heaven, walking on water, right? We already talked about that in the book of Matthew. We've already seen that. But now he's going to provide manna from heaven, if you want to call it that. He's going to give them food when there is not enough food. And he does this for the people. And then it's very interesting. Immediately after, the Pharisees demand signs. So Jesus does these miracles and these healings and these signs to prove just like in the Exodus, he has authority over every realm. Just like in Exodus, we see that God has authority over every false god. But then he rebukes the Pharisees and others for demanding more signs. It's interesting. It's like, did I not do enough for you? Have you not seen enough signs? You have seen enough signs, but you don't believe. And the reason you're asking for more is not so that you'll believe. It's because you are unwilling to trust me. And that's where Jesus starts here. And then we start to see people start to trust Jesus. And that's where the next section, part two of our reading this week, is all about how Peter and the apostles agree and confess that Jesus is the Christ. And once that takes place in Matthew 16, Jesus starts to speak very plainly about who he is and what he's going to do. So it starts with Peter saying, you are the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And then it goes on to Jesus saying, okay, you're Peter. I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will never prevail against it. And I'm going to give the people in the church authority. So he gives the church authority for what's called binding and loosing, which we'll see later 
in chapter 18, and it's all about how the church has some authority on earth. I mean, as Protestants, you know, evangelical Protestants, sometimes we react to false teaching on church authority that maybe comes from places like uh, Roman Catholic doctrine or other uh, high church establishments that think the church has the ultimate authority. Obviously, Christ has the ultimate authority, but it is also true that he delegates authority to the people in his church. So that's what he starts to do. Then we see Jesus predicting his death and resurrection twice. You're actually going to read about two times where he does that, once in chapter 16 and then again in chapter 17. And all these things are, again, showing these disciples, you trust me now? Great. I'm so glad you trust me. I'm going to share the truth about what I'm going to do and that I'm going to leave and then I'm going to rise again. And if you know the story, you know Peter doesn't respond well to that immediately. Um, these people, these disciples oppose Jesus a little bit, and Jesus has to correct them too. So it's not just the Pharisees that are getting correction, it's also the disciples. Then an interesting thing happens in chapter 17. The transfiguration is what we call it, but really what's taking place is Jesus goes up on a mountain, like God on a mountain in the Old Testament a couple times, and to very particular followers of him, he shows him his glory. And you think, when did that happen in the Old Testament? Well, that happened, you know, in Exodus with Moses. We're about to read that in next week's DBR. That's true. Uh, that also happened with Elijah in First Kings. He went down to Mount Sinai, and God showed himself again like he showed himself to Moses. He showed him his glory. Um, so that happened twice. So what two people do you think might show up on the mountain where God reveals himself again? Well, Moses and Elijah. <laughs> the same two people that were there like Peter, James, and John. Those same two guys show up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Very significant. Then in chapter 18, this third part that we really read this week is Jesus starts to tell people how the church should operate. It starts with, if you want to be great, you should be a servant. And make sure you're not leading other people into sin. And if your brother sins against you, you need to make sure you go one-on-one. And then take a couple people and then talk to that person. And then go to the church. And if the church, if they won't respond to the church, if an unrepentant sinner won't respond to the church, then treat that person like they're not a Christian. No more fellowship. No more um, close, tight-knit relationship. The relationship has to change because God is very serious about how a church should deal with unrepentant sin. Um, all so that the person will come back. And we see more information. If you want to know about church discipline, you can read about it there in Matthew 15, uh, Matthew 18. You can also read more about it in 1 Corinthians 5. You get some good information from the Apostle Paul on what that all looks like. Um, But then that all leads to where Jesus says, hey, you know how serious it is that you reconcile? It's so serious that if you're a forgiven person, you better be someone who's willing to bring people back in the fold when they repent. You got people who ask you for forgiveness, but if you've been forgiven so much by God, you better be the first person to say, yes, of course, I want to accept you back. I want to forgive you for what you did. And that comes in chapter 18 with the parable of the unforgiving servant. The final part is where people start asking Jesus questions. So part four of our reading this week comes in chapter 19 where people start asking Jesus questions. First group is the Pharisees. They ask about marriage. The second group is children. They want to come and talk to Jesus. The third is the rich young ruler. He asks Jesus a question. What good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? And then the fourth is Peter. He says, Jesus, we've left everything. The, fair, the, the rich young ruler doesn't want to leave his stuff behind, but we have left everything. What will we get from you? So I bring this up because I want you to notice the questions that people ask Jesus and how he responds. 
You learn a lot about Jesus by how he responds to these questions. So um, we're going to see more of that next week in chapter 22. In chapter 26, we're going to get a lot of people questioning Jesus. In fact, chapter 22 is just like different groups of people in the temple asking Jesus questions, which is very important. But these four questions, uh, Pharisees asking about divorce, it's very interesting. Matthew 19 is probably the most detailed teaching that Jesus has on marriage and divorce and remarriage. It's very important. You learn that marriage is from the beginning. So God made it. You learn that marriage is between one man and one woman. That's very important. You also learn that marriage is for life. What God has joined together, let not man separate. And then you learn about divorce, that God did allow divorce. He even allowed Moses to issue divorces because of the hardness of people's hearts, which should even take you back to the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus deals with the heart, and then he says, well, anger is a heart problem, not just murder. And lust is a heart problem, not just adultery. And divorce is a heart problem. So all of this fits together as you read the Gospel of Matthew. But he teaches about divorce. He says divorce is permitted for sexual immorality. And I think the sexual immorality that Jesus and his audience would have in mind is that of adultery, that one uh, one, sp- one spouse is cheating on another. Very, very significant. It's breaking of the covenant. We see language in the book of Hosea in the Old Testament about how adultery is like tearing a covenant apart and it's ruining the marriage relationship. So something we should all take super seriously. And then another thing, as we read about the rich young ruler and Peter, just notice that you ultimately have two different kinds of people. You don't have the interested and the uninterested. You have the committed and the uncommitted. Peter's committed. The apostles are committed. They left everything. The rich young ruler is interested, but not committed. The gospel of Matthew, if it's taught you anything about people, and the response to Jesus is that you got two groups of people, the committed and uncommitted. And as you read this, I just hope this pushes you as a disciple of Christ in your evangelism, in your discipleship of other people, to push people to really be committed, not to just claim that they want some kind of relationship with Jesus. A lot of people want some kind of relationship with Jesus. That's not what we we're aiming for. Jesus is aiming for disciples who will follow him to the ends of the earth. He's calling for disciples who will multiply and make other disciples. He's calling for that kind of level of commitment. So I hope that this reading this week even encourages you to be more and more committed to the Christ and the Lord that you serve. So thanks for reading with us. Hope that you have subscribed to us, whether you listen on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or Pocket Cast or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you subscribe. Uh, You can also find these on YouTube. You can find uh, the Daily Bible Reading Snapshot videos all on my YouTube channel. So if you go to John Favares, if you type that in, hopefully nothing bad shows up. Hopefully it's all uh, good uh, preaching and stuff like that. But if you go and subscribe to my YouTube channel, you'll find more there. So thanks for joining us. We'll see you back next week for the Daily Bible Reading Snapshot podcast. Thank you.